Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Mentally Fit Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, V, and today we're going to be talking about a topic that is a little bit touchy, a little bit of a sensitive topic. We're going to be discussing spiritual abuse and racial trauma from within the church. Now, this is something that I've wanted to explore for a really long time, and I'm just now scratching the surface um, just because of my own experiences, my own trauma being somebody that grew up in the church and just trying to make sense of it all. I have an incredible expert to introduce you guys to. His name is Kyle Howard. And without further ado, I'm going to let him go ahead and introduce himself and let's get into this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast to have this super important conversation with me today. Kyle, if you could please just introduce yourself to the audience, let them know who you are and what you do. Absolutely. And first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, as you said, my name's uh, Kyle J. Howard. Uh, I'm a Christian theologian, public theologian, and a uh, counselor. Uh, specifically, I'm a trauma-informed soul care provider is what I call myself. And uh, what I, I, I guess I operate in different lanes. Is one, as, as, as I mentioned, as a public theologian, um, I write and I speak and I travel and talk about um, issues related to uh, the church and, so, and uh, various theological issues, I guess you could say, related to the church, maybe church history, you know, stuff related to that. Um, as a counselor, uh, what I do is I, I'm, I'm a trauma-informed counselor, so I do um, counseling with people who have been um, traumatized uh, largely by the church, uh, the two primary fields that I've been focusing on, uh, beyond you know, the typical like marriage counseling and stuff like that, is uh, racial, racial trauma uh, in the church, as well as spiritual abuse. And so um, the book that I'm currently writing right now is called When the Church Becomes a Trigger, and it's a book about mm-hmm. spiritual abuse in the church. And that's going to be followed closely behind another book on uh, racial trauma in the church, uh, dealing with the, the way in which um, um, Black and uh, POC uh, Christians have experienced um, uh, race-based trauma in relation to uh, white supremacy and, and, and racial prejudices uh, within the church, specifically within evangelicalism. Yeah, I mean, learning about what you do was definitely huge for me, um, just because I had never even really heard about spiritual abuse. And I know, I, like, obviously, I've, I know that trauma and stuff like that can happen in the church. But what my experience specifically was, was just being growing up in the in a Christian household, everything was always like, okay, if you're having an issue with something, if I'm depressed, if I'm acting out in school, anything, it was like, okay, let's go to church. Even down to things that were like, like huge, like sexual abuse, child abuse, stuff that as a family and as a community that we need to process, work through, heal from, everything was always just chalked up to like, you're not praying enough. Well, go to church, like, let's just lay hands on you. And somehow the trauma that you've experienced is just going to leave your body. Um, And I think that's the the biggest misconception that I had growing up that my family had and a lot of members of my old community have is that when we're having any type of issue, let's just go to church and pray. And I felt like, like I had mentioned on the panel and last time that we spoke is that that I felt like was such a huge disservice to me because I never actually got to process any of the trauma or any of the things that I went through by going to church. It was just kind of silenced. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And and I think one of the things that's challenging is that so when, um, as someone who is, uh, again, as a Christian, as a theologian, I do believe that um, human beings are more than just um, uh, naturalistic dynamics. And so we're more than just, um, chemicals and nuance and all those kinds of things, but I believe in uh, body and soul or mm-hmm. mind, body, and soul, however you want to uh, parse that. But what that means is that um, as, a, as uh, ensouled beings, as, uh, as, as beings that have a soul, it, I believe that uh, one of the most um, devastating kinds of trauma is spiritual trauma. And I think that all trauma is, in some, to some degree, spiritual trauma, because all trauma does impact us more than just on a psychological level. It, it impacts us spiritually. It, it hurts mm. our souls. Mm-hmm. And we think about the church. The church is supposed to be a place that is, in many ways, a spiritual refuge, a safe haven uh, for people to heal, even on a spiritual level. 
And so when that, when that dynamic is turned into just another expression of ritualism, or that's used uh, more as kind of a tool to be a, like a Band-Aid to cover uh, mm. deep pain rather than a place where people can go be heard, be cared for, be loved, be embraced, uh, and all those kinds of things, then that can have a, a, a devastating impact. Um, and it, it's understandable to have a devastating impact because of the what a church is supposed to be and what a mm -hmm. spiritual environment like a church is supposed to provide for people. And so I, I do absolutely think that one of the most, um, and honestly, one of the most tragic things uh, that has happened across the board is that um, churches have become more like Sunday clubs or like, a, like a, or more like a, a, a you know, kind of like a place that people go to, to kind of more like hang out. It's not a place of, of community, of love, of, of family and those kinds of things. But even more than that, church has become weaponized. It's become mm -hmm. a place uh, where people, uh, especially abusers, uh, use, the kind, use spiritual authority to compound people's pain or to cause people pain rather than as a, a stewardship to serve people in healing and yeah. to encourage people in love. And so I, I think that that's had profound implications on, on everyone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like one of the biggest issues that I see is like, yes, okay, the church is supposed to be this place of refuge for healing. But when most of the ministers are not trauma informed and are just, they just don't have that education around mental health. When I come to them and I'm like, pastor, I've, my uncle was sexually abusing me or this is what's happening in my household. What do I do? And all they do is pray because they don't know, like maybe they just don't understand how mental health and seeing an actual clinician, a trauma informed minister like yourself and just the knowledge that you have to have to just help somebody process that kind of thing. I feel like a lot of churches, I think they just don't understand what to do. So they want to provide that support and they're like, okay, like this prayer is definitely going to help. And then it just kind of just gets swept under the rug and moved on. And then the parent, like my mom, for example, would feel like, oh, well, that's great. Like they prayed over her, you know, they have her volunteering now. So all of that just goes away. So I guess my question is like, what can churches do to kind of just kind of avoid that adding more insult to injury when somebody comes in with these types of deep trauma and issues that they need help healing? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, an, that's an excellent question. Um, it's a big question. <laughs> uh, literally, books can be written, and I hope to write books on that question. <laughs> uh, but uh, to kind of try to, I guess, kind of make it concise is, uh, so first and foremost, I think that a couple of things are happening. And I, I want to be honest with, with you and say that one of it is, one of the things is that it's taught. Um, and so I've been to seminary. I've been to um, one of the degrees that I got at a seminary uh, was in what's called biblical counseling or Christian counseling. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in that degree program, there was a large uh, kind of antagonism towards clinical psychology mm. and, uh, and clinical therapy. And to some extent, I understand the antagonism. I think that it's a mutual antagonism. And, and I think that it happens when people don't honor the lanes in which they serve in and they begin mm -hmm. to start trying to operate in lanes that they are not qualified to serve in. And so you can have the clinical therapist who's operating out of very naturalistic paradigms begin to try to act like a minister as mm -hmm. they in their therapeutic services. And so they cross that line. And then on the other side, you can have someone whose who's, um, vocation it is, is to be in a, 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 again, a soul care provider, more or less, who then steps into a line that they have not been, have any experience or any knowledge in, and they can actually compound trauma and cause even further pain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so I think one of the things that has to happen is that there has to be humility um, across the board and for people to recognize their lanes, where they, where, they, where they are and how they're supposed to operate within those lanes and seek not to cross over into areas where they're not equipped so they don't compound uh, problems. Yeah. And so for me as a trauma-informed counselor, what that does mean is, so I, I'm, not a, I'm not a clinical therapist. Uh, I recognize that I'm not a clinical therapist. And my, my, what I would like to do is partner with clinical therapists to ensure that people are getting comprehensive care. What that would also require, though, is respect on the other side, on the side of the clinical therapist, who they themselves may be operating a more naturalistic uh, award view or perspectives, to have, some, have respect for those who provide so care 
and for mm-hmm. us to work together to ensure that that individual is getting comprehensive care. And of course, it's not going to be for everybody. I, I don't. I don't think. I don't. I doubt that I'm going to have any atheists come to me, <laughs> you know, for yeah. for soul care. You know, but there are people who who do believe in the soul, who do want to have to flourish both mentally as well as spiritually, who are getting anemic care because both people are so protective of their lanes that they try to then cross over into other people's lanes and and, and operate in that way when they're not qualified. Now, yeah. when we're dealing with trauma, though, I, I personally think that that has this huge ramifications for ministers who try to engage uh, issues of trauma who are not trauma-informed, meaning that mm-hmm. they don't understand the dynamics of gaslighting, they don't understand PTS, they don't understand the various kind of trauma responses that people can have. And so when you communicate with people, um, if you don't understand those things, you can actually compound the trauma. Uh, let me give you a prime example. I think this is one of the most critical examples. Uh, power dynamics. If, I, if I'm doing counseling, say somebody who's been traumatized, okay, say that they've been abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the major aspects of abuse is that there has been an abuse, there's been a, a perversion of power. Uh, someone has weaponized power and has used it to harm someone else. And when you're doing counseling with someone who has been abused and has trauma because of their abuse, um, they're, they're, one of the dynamics that's always going to be trauma triggering is if there is any kind of feeling that they are powerless. Mm. And so if I'm doing counseling with someone who has been traumatized or has been abused, in that counseling, I have to practice self-denial and make sure that they are, I have to constantly reassure them that they are the ones with power in that room. I don't have power here. We, we talk about what you want to talk about. If you don't want to talk or you just want to sit here, we'll just sit here. I allow that they entirely have all the power in that room to steer the conversation and dialogue however they want to go with it. And, and, and I'm coming alongside them. Now, as a, a pastor or, someone, or a minister is used to being in a context, even when it comes to counseling, where they are the ones in the front, where they're, the, they're in the driver's seat more or less. And if you try to be in the driver's seat with someone who's been abused, then you will be naturally triggered at those, um, their trauma because they need to be in that driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you have to be able to grant them that power, give them that, the power to guide and to direct and to steer everything. And you can't have this kind of tension there where, you, where they in any way, shape or form feel like there is a compromise of power and that because that's going to, to them, feel like they are no longer safe. Mm-hmm. And so someone who is who's trauma informed, who's doing soul care can recognize these dynamics and make sure that they are navigating a counseling room, which is a very intimate space in a way where that traumatized counselee uh, feels like they have all the power. They have they, they feel secure. They feel safe and are able to share. But mm-hmm. a, a, count, a pastor or a, a Christian uh, quote, Christian counselor doesn't understand that trauma dynamic then they're going to try to. Um, steer those conversations in those times and all that's going to do is just compound trauma Um, so that that would be one of the 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 kind of examples that i would give where i would say if you're not trauma informed but even doing soul care you can end up causing more harm than good and as long as we and this is a whole nother issue so i'll kind of stop here and and (laughs) see what you want to go with where you want to go with it but if we have and i'm speaking more of, of to christian ministers here saying that if we don't understand the uh, the, the reality that people are both mind and soul and that people need that kind of comprehensive care. Simply spiritual care is not enough for comprehensive flourishing. People need emotional and mental health and flourishing as well. And if we think that people are full just because they are being cared for spiritually, we are actually um, being uh, derelict in our own duties, which is encouraging people to comprehensive flourishing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a lot of good points. And I think it's so important to recognize, again, like staying in your lane. I think that's so important. And just like a lot just in community in general, and a lot of the issues that we're seeing right now in our country. Um, but staying in your lane and knowing that people do need that comprehensive care that, like, that you're talking about. And also that power dynamic, that example you gave is a perfect example, because that's exactly what I went through as a teen. Like, like I was going through a lot just from past experience of child abuse and sexual abuse. And I had to see a counselor at church with my mom. And the whole time, the, per- the 
counselor was just just going in on me. I definitely had no power in that room. And honestly, it just made me feel like once I leave that room, I just need to rebel somehow, I guess, to like take that back and take control over myself because I definitely did not feel safe around adults. And that dynamic is, is huge. Um, and I want to just explore more of like that power dynamic within the church. I feel like one of the reasons why on both sides, why people might not want to stay in their lanes is because of that power dynamic and wanting to be like the end all be all help for somebody and have all the answers and be the one in control, I feel like is a huge issue. And one of the, just to go off again on further into that, one of the topics that a lot of people are talking about is just that church power dynamic as it relates to white supremacy and all of the racial trauma that is coming to light now. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up that we talked about a little bit before the podcast was that interview with Lecrae and the pastor in Atlanta. So watching that interview and just seeing just the dynamic in that interview, can we talk a little bit about like what were your thoughts? I know a lot of people went in on Lecrae saying that, you know, he took an L or it was so wrong of him to not respond. But what, what were you seeing when you saw that interview and that dynamic? Uh, that's a great question. And I mean, I, so yeah, so I was watching that through the lens of a counselor and uh, I guess I can understand. So some people, my perspective is going to be kind of like uh, they, they may roll their eyes at. And, and I say that because as the counselor, in order to be a counselor, you kind of have to abound in empathy. You can't, you can't be a counselor unless you're abounding in empathy. Mm -hmm. being able to relate to people, being able to think and kind of put yourself in their shoes, feel how they're feeling. That's what makes a gifted counselor, someone who's able to kind of do that. And so when I look at situations, I try to look through that, those lens. And when I think about watching that interview, uh, I, I saw so many things uh, going on at one time. On the one hand, I saw, and I actually did a video about a 10, 15 minute video discussing these things. But on the one hand, what I saw was this pastor who, who was trying. And I want to make this clear that there's a ton of white pastors who aren't even trying. Uh, he mm -hmm, was willing mm -hmm. to put himself in a situation where, yeah, he said something really, really bad. But at least he he tried. <laughs> mm -hmm, and, uh, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. what I this is what I saw though. What I saw was here's the white pastor, who is trying to engage in issues of white supremacy, but he's trying to do it without losing his base, which is white. And so he is trying to create a new vernacular, a new vocabulary to talk about these issues that doesn't unnecessarily offend his white base. Mm, and, so yeah. using, and, and so using the term white privilege is going to offend some, some, if not many, white people. So he tried to think of a way, how can I say this in a way that's going to appease my white audience mm -hmm. um, and white base? And so he came up with this category of white blessing. Now, I don't think he meant what many people think that he meant. He did not mean in that, by using that term that uh, he thinks that, it's, that he's blessed or that white people are blessed because of black oppression. Mm -hmm, that wasn't mm -hmm. what he was trying to say. What he was trying to say, though it was still bad, <laughs> was that there is a dynamic where uh, benefit, blessing for benefit. He was trying to say that there are white benefits, there are benefits that white people have in order to, um, that, that, um, that are a byproduct of slavery. Mm -hmm. and, and what I did in my talk, when I, what I was kind of critiquing this was saying, I, I, I want white people to understand how subtly and how, that, um, how subtly spiritual abuse can creep into a situation. Mm. And, and the reason that creeped in is, this, is because of this. One, he is using the Bible to, uh, to, uh, to argue this point. So we're talking about white supremacy, white privilege. And he, and, and first off, he, he has, he's not thinking about the oppressed. He's not thinking about representing the, advocating for the oppressed black people. He's thinking about how can he appease the oppressor? How can he appease white people? And so automatically his use or his wielding of power is skewed here. Because in the Christian ethic, power is supposed to be used completely differently than how it's used in the world. Power mm -hmm. is given for the purposes of empowering people to empower the powerless. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. the 
for the first to be last and the last to be first. So when someone's granted power, the goal of that power is to, to use it for the purposes of helping the marginalized, helping the oppressed, those without power, obtain greater power. And so he has the power of the stage, he has the power of his influence, he has the power of the pastorate, and he was to use that power to elevate the voices of the powerless. But instead, he thought, sought to appease the voices of the powerful. So already was he misappropriating power as a Christian minister. But then he goes deeper and he baptizes this abuse of power by not using the term benefit, which is what he means, but by spiritualizing it into the term blessing. Mm-hmm. And so now he's wielding faith as a, as a tool in order to empower the powerful. Mm-hmm. And any time faith is used to empower the powerful at the expense of the marginalized spiritual abuses occur. Mm-hmm. And, that doesn't, and so you can apply that to sexual abuse in the church. You can apply that to any, any dynamic in the church. When power is used to empower the powerful at the expense of those without power, spiritual abuses occurring. And, and so in that dialogue, what we ended up having, having there was, a, in my opinion, a well-meaning pastor who subtly, ended, because of his ambitions being skewed, he ends up actually uh, practicing spiritual abuse in that situation. Mm-hmm. Now, on the, on the Lecrae side, um, and knowing, knowing some of Lecrae's story, you know, I've read his book and everything else, Lecrae has experienced a profound degree of spiritual abuse in the church, a profound degree of racial trauma uh, in the church I mean, because of his outspokenness towards racial advocacy issues. Mm-hmm. And he is put in a situation as a black man on this stage with two white people. So he has, he has no ally on this stage mm-hmm. at this that was and a so, huge problem to me. <laughs> and, 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 if, and if you understand trauma dynamics, here this guy is. He's on this stage. He has this one white guy who comes over and starts sh- trying to shine his shoes in front of everybody. And so you, you, have, this, oh, this, you have this public – so he's, he's made a public spectacle. Not in, not, I'm not saying that it was intentional, but it was definitely naive at best. But he's made a public spectacle of – Here's this black guy. Let me go ahead and, and try to act like, you know, and demonstrate shining this guy's shoes. And it's kind of ironic when you see Lecrae say, this isn't what I asked for. How about some ch- stock and Chick-fil-A? He was completely ignored. So when he actually dealt with the actual dynamics of economic restitution, that was ignored. But the public spectacle was something that was pursued. Mm-hmm. But you have this guy who already has a, a profound degree of uh, racial trauma uh, due to white evangelicalism on stage by himself. Uh, becoming a public spectacle, which is not what he signed up for. And then he's now encountering the person who actually had him come, and he's having this language of white blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, in that moment, from my experience, as a, uh, and I, and again, I'm not, I don't want to do too much projection here, but I mean, Lecrae has already spoken to it publicly. Yeah. Um, about that, being tra- that experience itself being traumatizing for him. At that moment, he's trying not to break down. He's trying to not have another traumatic episode of being triggered and have a mental breakdown in front of the, the thousands upon thousands of people who are watching that. Yeah. And so I, on one level, I understand the people who are like, yeah, why didn't you speak up? Because, I mean, yeah, I feel that way. But then as the counselor, I mean, I'm like, he was doing everything he possibly could in that moment not to have a breakdown. Oh, yeah. And trauma dynamics. And I'm, I'm thankful that he didn't lose his composure, but he was able to, you know, stay there and, you know, not have a mental breakdown on stage because then he'd have to be recovering from that. Yeah. <laughs> and the shame of that and the guilt of that and everything else. And so I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form should we be um, tearing Lecrae down for that situation that he was put in. Um, yeah. I think that there's some deep assessment that needs to be happening on the sides of those white people that really speaks to the dynamics of, again, white supremacy in the church and how it operates. Um, and, and, and operates in such, in many ways, but in one of the ways it operates is it has this way of um, silencing black voices. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of Tony Morrison who talked about the white gaze, where black people navigate that space constantly under the white gaze, under white scrutiny, and every move and everything they do is monitored and watched, ready to be criticized. Mm-hmm. And when you're kind of in that space and you're invited into those spaces to speak, you, it, there's, there's a thousand different landmines you're trying not to, to set off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're trying to navigate which landmines I don't set off. And then when you get out of that space, you're criticized for the landmines you did set off. 
Mm-hmm. And but I but I, this is kind of a side note. I think that the worst the worst pain that somebody in that situation has is not the scrutiny that comes from other from white people because they're in that space because they know they're going to upset white people. What's painful is when black people begin tearing them down. Oh yeah. Where they enter that space with all their trauma. The only place that they have, the only refuge they have is affirmation that they receive from their own people. And they look to their own people for that affirmation and everyone is silent. Yeah. And or, or even worse is tearing them down, calling them a traitor, calling them a sellout. That talk about compounding trauma, that right there is and I've experienced it in in, in different platforms, is is brutal, you know, beyond yeah. words. It's yeah. Like when I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Like when I first, when I first heard about it, just for anybody who's listening, who's never, who has no idea what we're talking about right now. Um, Lecrae is a Christian rapper and he was interviewed and he joined a talk basically with two white pastors in Atlanta talking about just the racial injustice and everything that's been going on with the black lives matter movement and, and, all of that. So, and during that interview, the Atlanta pastor tried to refer to white privilege as a white blessing. And that definitely was seen completely awful. For me, when I saw the interview, I only watched that clip at first, was just that clip. And I'm just like, huh, like, I agree with you. I do. And I do think that he wasn't trying to, it definitely came out wrong. And I feel like the pastor himself did have good intentions, but at the end of the day, a lot of these, a lot of, of white people have good intentions when they are traumatizing us, unfortunately. Um, and when I watched that interview, I felt for Lecrae 100%. And when I saw that social media post, like I was commenting like, guys, please stop attacking him. When I saw him sitting there and having to take that in, one, the dynamic of him being the only black guy there, like I, anybody, I know for my own experience, anytime I'm the only black person in the room, there's already the emotions that come with that, the discomfort. And like you said, the white gaze, there's already all that we have to deal with that. So then to be confronted talking about black issues with white people, especially powerful, like in the dynamic that Lecrae was in on that stage. And then it's just, it's so hard to respond to that kind of thing. It is so hard. It's, to me, it's the same thing. Like, I think a lot of people don't understand that racial trauma exists. I myself didn't really, like, that term was unfamiliar to me just a few months ago. Um, and they don't understand that it is trauma. And so, like, obviously, if somebody went through, let's say, like, we're talking about sexual abuse, like, you know, like, obviously, you're not going to, one, play devil's advocate about someone's experience with sexual abuse. You're not going to um, just talk to them and, the way that people do when they're discussing racial trauma and racial injustice. So when I watched that interview and I saw, you know, kind of his non-response, because he didn't really respond to the whole white blessing thing at all. And that's why people were upset. And I was just like, put yourself in his shoes. Like, I can imagine myself on that. I know that I wouldn't have been able to respond. Like, I know that, you know? So I was able to look at him and be like, okay, yes. Like, I've been in that position before where I'm talking to people that clearly don't understand the pain and the trauma and the issues that I'm dealing with. And I can't explain it to them. Like I'm still dealing with this right now, you know? So I feel like that's really tough. And just to talk more about like the power dynamic, the other thing I wanted to bring up to you was just, there's been a lot of conversation and I've heard about this in my upbringing, but it's never really come to the forefront as like a full on conversation that I've explored, but just the talk of the way Christianity was essentially weaponized and brought up as a, a, a tool of white supremacy and the way that even things like homophobia, homo, homosexuality in the Bible and Jesus being portrayed as a white man with brown hair and like green eyes or however they portray him in movies these days. Can we talk a little bit about just what people have been saying about religion and Christianity specifically being used as a tool of white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. And just one, one quick, quick clarification, because I think it's helpful is that, um, so the, the, the two white guys on stage were not both pastors. Mm. Uh, it was, it was pastor Louis Giglio who pastors a church of like over 10,000 people. But the other guy was Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. 
And so when we think about the power dynamics that were on those that stage, you have the CEO of Chick-fil-A that, you know, the massive, huge, multi, you know, big uh, uh, Chick-fil-A. And then you had this white pastor. So Lecrae was mm. on stage with two powerful figures. One of the, the one that came and watched his, uh, uh, pretended to watch his feet was, is a, is an extremely powerful figure. And, 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 uh, white figure <laughs> i'm trying to choose mm-hmm. my words carefully yeah. but I, but i but which is why when he walked away the cray said it, uh, basically you know how about some chick-fil-a stocks and he he ignored lecrae when he said that or maybe mm. he didn't you know why we want to interpret that but i think that that's i think that really speaks to what we see now with everything that's happening like the tokenism the, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, say like the black national anthem at the NFL. It's like, yo, white people stay doing things we don't ask for to avoid doing the things that we ask for. Yeah, so and painting Black Lives Matter on the street. Yeah, painting yeah. it, the murals and all of that when we're really asking for systemic change and to be seen and heard. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so, and, and I think that speaks to so the bigger issue, although the, th- uh, the, the, the point that you were getting at is white supremacy as it relates to Christianity. And there's so, I mean, again, that, can you hear me? I saw, yes. I think my mic messed up for a second. Sorry. Uh, and there's so much that could be said there. Uh, but I think it, it does go back to um, the beginning of um, essentially colonization. When you think about the early church, and again, that, that is my field, I'm, my, uh, my specific field in theology is historical theology, which is the um, historical development of theology, how theology develops over time. Um, and when you think about the early church, uh, of course, Jesus was Palestinian. Um, Israel was an ancient Near East uh, Palestinian, uh, a Palestine. And so Jesus was absolutely unequivocally a brown man. And, uh, and Jesus was a brown man who grew up his childhood in Africa, Egypt, <laughs> even more so. But uh, even when you, so when you think about Jesus, Jesus is an immigrant who goes from um, his land in Israel. He flees Israel because um, someone's seeking his death. The king, the emperor of the time, the king of the time is seeking his death. And so he flees um, um, Israel and comes to Egypt, comes into uh, North Africa, and that's where he's raised until they hear that King Herod has died, and then they move back into Israel. And so th- there's some irony there when you think about that and uh, the way that um, white evangelicals deal with immigration um, and, and what's mm-hmm. happening at the border here. Jesus was yeah. fleeing uh, death and came to a foreign land that actually was willing to receive him. But when you think about the, this brown Jesus who spent his childhood in Africa, then went back to Israel, all of the apostles of, a, of, a, of, a, of course, Palestinian as well, they're all uh, Jews, uh, Palestinian Jews. And when you think about the early church, uh, the early church is, um, the foundations of the early church is Africa. It's North Africa. Of course, history tells us that all the slaves who came here were all pagan. They don't tell us that there were slaves who came here who were Christians, who learned about Christianity, not because of indoctrination by white men, but they learned about Christianity because the, the, the continent of Africa was the first continent that uh, Christianity was introduced to uh, beyond uh, Israel. And, and so you, in, in North Africa, you have the base of the early Christian church, and all of the early Christian fathers were black, were black, were, were black Africans, whether you're talking about origin, whether you're talking about St. Augustine. Um, St. Augustine, of course, is a, is a huge figure within Roman Catholicism. He's a huge figure within the church. He's crucial when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity and you know, various other principles. Uh, he was black. Um, he was uh, he was half Berber. When you think about Athanasius, he's the one who developed uh, the doctrine. Of the, when you think about the Council of Nicaea, which is a common uh, council that people know about, he was one of the prominent speakers uh, in defense of the Trinity and in defense of the deity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea. His nickname was the Black Dwarf because he was a short black dude. And and so the early church fathers uh, were all uh, African of African descent. The early church was all heavily influenced by Africa. And it wasn't until about the four or five hundreds AD where you have the Roman uh, church begins uh, asserting itself in, in, in the pursuit of dominance that you then begin having this whitewashing happening of all these, uh, these figures where you now have uh, depictions of Jesus becoming white because, again, Rome, European. You have depictions of St. Augustine becoming white, uh, pictures of origin becoming white. And so there was an intentional whitewashing of major Christian figures and even uh, the early church uh, figures from King David to Jesus, as <laughs> all being these white figures. Yeah. And it's, it's undeniable that that 
idea and that ideology begins form, reforming Christianity as being this white man's religion, this European religion, rather than being a, a religion that was taken uh, from ancient Palestine, North Africa, and basically refashioned within a, a, a Eastern European context. And when you take that and when you then think, when you add in the dynamics of, of racial superiority that comes with uh, principles of Darwinism and evolution, you then have this idea and principle that comes along that says, well, white people are the original people. They're the superior people. Uh, mm -hmm. All, you know, people, black and brown people are essentially inferior based on biology. And so the whole conception of race, the whole constr social construct of race, of blackness and whiteness and all these kinds of things was all created and all birthed out of, of a perverted Christian theology that mm. saw Jesus as being white, that saw the Old Testament Bible characters of white, and even ultimately even Adam and Eve is white. And so Europe becomes a center of creation rather than Africa, of, of, of humans rather than Africa, which we all know is now the, the, the homeland of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so over time, this, this happens, and it has huge ramifications for how we live now. When we think about, again, um, the indoctrination of, of, of slaves. Um, slaves were indoctrinated into a form of Christianity. But I think what's, what's awesome is that uh, Black Africans being one of, the, one of the, the primary, one of the only persecuted churches here in America, though they were indoctrinated by white people, many of them, they end up embracing more of the faith of their forefathers of Africa than the white theology that they were taught by their slave masters. And so again, so you have these slaves, they're indoctrinated by their slave masters into this kind of Christianity, but these slaves begin reading the Bible and they begin, you know, talking amongst themselves and they begin looking at white Christianity and saying, hey, this isn't the real Christianity. This is some, this is some demonic religion. This isn't actually the, the faith of the Bible. And so ultimately, these uh, white Christians teach um, African slaves Christianity and African slaves um, embrace Christianity, but they embrace more of the Christianity that came from Africa and they reject the Christianity that they were taught and they actually become the stewards of the gospel in this land for a few hundred years. Mm. And, and so when we think about the church right now, we think about the black church, the black church has, has been the, uh, the steward of the gospel uh, for centuries as the white church that originally indoctrinated them basically apostatized, basically went to another faith, a faith of, a faith of white supremacy that is, was fueled by theological ideas or religious ideas. But we see it again. We see it, we see it today. So I, I wrote an article called um, When the Church Colonizes Femininity, where I talk about, and, and from the perspective of the, as a counselor, about how, um, and I give an illustration in my article about a young um, uh, brown guy that I was counseling. And one of the things is he was a cat from New York. He, he one of the things, he loved black women. He loved Latino women. He was, he was uh, Latino himself. So he loved, he loved Latinas. He loved black women. But when he came to... Um, seminary and came to my context he was only dating white women mm. and any white girl he would pursue would always be white women and i and i i asked him i was like so why is it that back home back in, in the bronx it was it was black women and and uh latinx all the way but then here in in, in this context you're only pursuing white women and then i asked him this question who do you think is uh I, i'm trying to think of the exact question i asked but i basically gave him a, a comparison between like Beyonce and Taylor Swift or something like that. I don't even remember what the question was. Mm -hmm. But what I ultimately pulled out of him was the fact that he was being, his perspective of beauty, even his perspective, perspective of what is godliness was being refashioned. He was being indoctrinated. And it was mm -hmm. being indoctrinated into this idea that femininity equaled the, this picture of this white Southern antebellum woman who was like super soft-spoken. Mm -hmm. And so when he was up, at, when he was in the Bronx, you know, dude loved, uh, you know, women, you know, strong, thoughtful, independent women, you know, who, you know, had their own voice, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he was, again, there was this indoctrination that was happening. And, yeah. and so you we see that where, again, within churches, the, the paradigm for femininity, especially within white churches, looks like a white Southern antebellum woman and women of color are forced to kind of uh, conform into that image in order to be considered both feminine as well mm -hmm. as godly. 
And so yeah. that's, that's one of many different examples. And in the black church, we have the same thing where there's a certain kind of, of, of woman that's looked to um, as being the paradigm and other women that are not. And honestly, it's very misogynistic. It's typically women who don't, are not independent in thought, don't have their own voice, not willing to speak up, but are women who are willing to just be more like, yes, sir. Yeah, and, and and so don't so what I would say is that I think that the black church has picked up on these things on the various aspects of misogyny and patriarch and patriarchy, but I would also argue that I think a lot of it goes back to white supremacy. I think mm-hmm. that black men have, in general, have picked up some of the white supremacist ideologies of black women, and they them we them ourselves perpetuate it. And we tear down our black women because of the ways in which we've been generationally indoctrinated to view black women. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's all, I definitely a hundred percent agree with you. And I would, I would also argue that we all have like, cause even for myself as a black woman growing up, like middle school and high school years, I had to wrestle with just really constantly push myself like, yes, you are gorgeous. Yes, you are smart. Yes, you can be independent. Like I had to drill that into myself because what I was seeing and what I was learning about was the opposite, that I am not pretty. I have dark skin. I cannot be outspoken. I cannot be independent. I cannot be smart. And I did experience a lot of like, you know, black men that expressed clearly that they were only interested in like soft-spoken white women or people that weren't just uh, essentially the opposite of the black woman. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you have the dynamics of colorism that come into play as well. Mm-hmm. All, all of those things. And, Byproducts. Uh, yeah. And, and, and what I would say is that, and I think this is, I think this is unavoidable. And as someone who is a minister in the church has to be, keep it 100 and say that, um, all of these things, they honestly are fueled by a perversion of Christian theology. Mm-hmm. White supremacy in America is a religious idea. It's yeah. an idea that was pushed by, it was by weaponized faith. And as I mentioned before, I, I do believe in the reality of the soul. I do, and I do believe that because we are in, uh, in souled beings, that one of the ways in which we one of the things that causes the most devastation is when you you don't just simply attack. So let me, let me see if I can say this another way. Um, and I want to be careful with my, my words here. But based upon my experience, even doing counseling uh, with, with uh, victims of sexual abuse, which is how I started out. Before I got into spiritual trauma and racial trauma, I was uh, counseling uh, situations dealing with sexual abuse. And so I've, I've counseled a decent amount of women who have been raped, sexually assaulted, and all those kinds of things. And in all of those situations, it, the physical um, abuse that they endured was not the worst kind of abuse that they had experienced. It was what it did to them on an emotional, um, psychological, and spiritual level. And on the spiritual level, it was because of the way in which the abuse was spiritualized. And this, let me think of another way to say it. It was, it was the answers that they got from their churches, kind of like what you were talking about earlier, the way in which the church engaged their abuse compounded the pain. It made, mm-hmm. it, it put guilt on them. Instead of them being understood of as being victims and, 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 seeing, and, and not being culpable for what happened to them, guilt was put on them. Guilt that they did not, did not belong on them was placed on them. Yeah. And, and so on a, on a spiritual level, they, they're given this, this guilt then on a psychological level, they're having to deal with the dynamics, especially if you're talking about child abuse, they're having to deal with the dynamics of someone who they, they trusted and someone who they thought was safe, not being safe. And so they're having to deal with the dynamics on a psychological level, on the emotional level, because they're children and they haven't, let, they haven't uh, come to maturity and understanding the emotional dynamics and all that's now been perverted. They have to deal with it on the emotional level. And then on the soul level, when the when, instead of the, the the church or Christians being a refuge for them and helping them understand um, and helping them to heal spiritually, it only they've only had the trauma compounded because mm-hmm. guilt has been all, uh, heaped upon them rather than um, rather than love and an understanding of their inherent worth and dignity in God and that regardless of what happened to them that they are still worth more than all the stars in the sky, and so th- it's it's a tragedy that how often faith is weaponized and when mm-hmm. faith is weaponized the, the depths of devastation it causes at least from my experience seems to be the the deepest and and the yeah. most um um devastating if that makes sense 
Yeah, definitely. So I guess like my biggest, what ended up happening in my story is, like I said, I grew up in the church. I dealt with a lot and I absolutely loved my church community, still love them to this day, like follow them on Instagram, all that. Um, But there came a point in my life where I just felt like in order to choose myself and my healing and my well-being, I had to reject that because because of everything that we've talked about of just like trauma being compounded. Anytime, everything that I dealt with and in the process of just trying to understand what was going on and process all the things that happened throughout my childhood, I was met with a lot of like, okay, guilt. Like, it's not like they said it's your fault, but it's just like the, the way the conversation goes, the questions that are asked and all of that. And so I ended up just deciding no more church for me, no more any of that to focus on my mental health. Like I felt like I needed to choose because they were not working together. So I guess my question is for anybody out there that's listening where they're like, okay, you know, I, I, I'm Christian. I, I still want to be a person of faith. But I am having these struggles with experiencing spiritual abuse or racial trauma or different things within the church. And maybe I've tried a number of different churches and I'm still having these experiences. How do I move forward? How do I move forward with my faith and work on my healing in a way that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And so one of the things that I would say is that, um, and, and, and I want to uh, say, uh, say this to you specifically as well, is that uh, I don't, you weren't really given much of a choice um, in regards to what you had to do in the situation and in the context that you had. Mm-hmm. It's, if, the, if, the, if the only spiritual answer that's being offered to you or the only answer for your soul that is being offered to you is pray about it, then I would argue one that's an insufficient, re- that's, that's, that's insufficient. Uh, nor is that a the, and I'll talk about this in a second. But nor is that the the extent of what can be offered through soul care. That is very very elementary, and that's not enough. That's not enough for spiritual health and spiritual growth. And that's not that wasn't enough in regards to as it relates to faith. To when people have experienced uh, personal devastation, simply merely saying just pray about it. That that does not offer healing. Um, and, any, and, and often it just comes off dismissive and, and, and it creates a kind of faith that's not big enough or glorious enough to be able to actually um, embrace suffering and, 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 and bring someone out on the other side of suffering uh, as being sorrowful yet always rejoicing as the Apostle Paul talks about. And so there has to be a, a grander faith in that in order for someone to be able to suffer and yet still be able to rejoice. And you want, it doesn't sound like you were offered that kind of faith. You were offered, um, I'm sure your family tried to do the best that they could, uh, given the context and everything else, but the, the, the context you were in could only offer you up an anemic faith. And that anemic faith was not enough to, to console uh, the depths of pain that you experienced, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what I would say is, so even when it, so when it comes to uh, soul care, um, one of the things is that, so the, that I'd be adamantly against is say simply just pray about it. I, so and let, me, let me make that clear. That's not what I do. When I do counseling, I don't just tell people just pray about it. <laughs> uh, but what, 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 what I seek to do is to help people come to terms with how does this, how does my present reality and the suffering that it includes how does my faith speak to this? Does my faith speak to this? How can I, how do I reconcile what I have experienced with my faith and, and move forward in that? And so when you think about something like abuse, one of the things, this is just a, this one example. So again, it'll be way more comprehensive than this, but one example of that is helping people to connect their suffering to Christ himself. Mm-hmm. You see, so even when you think about prayer, uh, Jesus is told, is called within in Hebrews 4 that he's our great intercessor that he's our high priest and he intercedes for us. And he, because he suffered in every way, he's a high priest that can sympathize. So when we do pray to Jesus, he, he knows what, he, he understands what we're praying. Mm-hmm. And, and that sounds good in theory, but what does that actually mean? And when it comes to dynamics of abuse, one of the things that I walk people through is helping them to see the cross of Christ in the rightful way. And what I mean by that is that when, when the Bible says that Jesus has suffered in every way and so therefore can sympathize, Jesus is able to, to sympathize and identify with the sexually abused. 
with the racially traumatized or the racially abused, with the physically assaulted or physically abused. And he's able to do that because in his crucifixion itself, he experienced those things. So when we think about sexual shame, for example, something that comes with abuse, Jesus was stripped naked and he was put up as a public spectacle on a cross for the entire world to look at. And so he was, he was, he was shamed and, and his sexuality was shamed before the masses and, and he experienced that shame. And so Jesus, not only, not only does Jesus in some kind of um, esoteric, non kind of grasping kind of way with our suffering, but no, Jesus himself was stripped naked and brutalized while naked. And then he was nailed to a cross and lifted up for the whole world to mock at. And so the person who has experienced sexual shame due to abuse the person who's experienced sexual abuse has with them a savior who can actually sympathize with them because they have actually partaking in the very suffering of christ what christ himself endured we think about racial trauma jesus was crucified because he was a jew and he was rejected by the jews because he was poor and he was from a poor side of town from nazareth and so the reason they didn't receive him as king was because he was a he was a poor Jew. And so they cried out, crucify him. And because he was a Jew, they crucified him and they mocked him and they pulled out his beard and various other kinds of things. They tortured him because of his Jewishness. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the cross, we think about Jesus being elevated on that cross. We recognize that Jesus was elevated. He was lifted up. He was crucified because of racial trauma, because of racial abuse, excuse me. And so uh, just on, on, again, on a very simplistic way, one of the things that I seek to connect people with and as it relates to faith-based is recognizing that Jesus himself and the suffering that we experience in this life, especially as it relates to abuse, that those things are things that Christ himself experienced for us on our behalf as he was nailed to that cross. And so, you, so, so your God is not a God who cannot sympathize with what you've been through. He's a God who went, who went through it and is able to uh, understand you more than you can imagine. More than you, more than you can comprehend, he is able to say, "I am with you. I understand yeah. what you've gone through," and and helping people to say, "Okay, well, if this is my Jesus. Is this is my Savior?" That changes the dynamics of what my salvation looks like. My salvation does become more personal. It's not this esoteric thing of, "Oh, I just believe Jesus, you know, died." It's no, Jesus died, and he died in a way that allows him to not to be connected with me. I am connected in Jesus's death in a unique way because of my suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and so all, all that to say that I think that one of the things that we need, and I, I don't know if I'm straying too far from your question here, sorry. Uh, but I, what, I, what I would say is that there has to be a, let me, let me take a step back and say, I, I understand people who come to me with, uh, say, spiritual trauma, or they come to me with various forms of trauma abuse, who are trying to reconcile faith with that, but they're finding it very difficult. Maybe they've been out of church for a long period of time uh, because of how the church dealt with it. The first thing that I do is I by no means seek to shame them for not being in church or being connected to a church Mm -hmm. because 99.9% of the time, I understand exactly why they left the church is because the faith that they were offered was not big enough to be able to speak to the, the various pains that they, and sufferings that they had in their life. And so they, and so they had to go with what, what could he- help heal them. And so mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the, the, the spiritual dynamic wasn't there, and so you anchored into mental health, which is something that is absolutely necessary. And so there are many people who anchor in mental health because when it comes to spirituality, their sources of that is very, very anemic. And, um, I, I, and I think that there is a lot of work ahead for people like me trying to uh, wake the church up to the reality of how anemic the faith is and seeking to help uh, other pastors and ministers in the church at large come to a place where people don't feel like they have to sacrifice their spirituality in order to obtain mental health. Mm-hmm. And people don't feel like there's some kind of dichotomy between mental health and spiritual health but can actually get spiritual help and be connected to someone who can offer them mental health. And, and, and so I, but I think that that begins with uh, reevaluating uh, the faith itself and making sure that we are establishing a faith that is, um, is not allergic uh, to the physical needs that people have or the mental needs that people have. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that we, I, I'm just going to be frank, and I say I think that many churches have a long way to go with that. I, I find mm-hmm. it very, very difficult to recommend uh, other soul care providers to people when they ask. 
uh, because I do, there's not that many out there who I feel that I could I could recommend because there is this kind of dynamic at play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is hard, and I definitely, as far as churches, it sucks that they have a long way. But I know I, I agree with you on that because I know, like specifically for churches that I've been to, they're like, well, we want to be the place that people come for all their problems and they're not super interested in referring out to a mental health professional or anything like that. They want people to seek all of their counseling from within the church. Yeah. And, and, to, um, and, to, and to that, that I respond to that by saying that for one, that's pride, that's arrogance. And two, I would say that that, that cannot be the way that we, we think about things. It has to be, you know, I want to do everything within my lane to, to ensure that people are flourishing spiritually. And mm -hmm. as it will, this is the dynamic of power. With the power that's been given to me and invested in me, I want to use that to, to help others get connected with who they need to get connected to in order for comprehensive care. So part of, part of me exercising my power as a minister and as a counselor is to connect people with other people who can, make, who can help them. Yeah, And I am actually misusing my own personal power as a counselor if I am trying to keep people all to myself rather than grabbing anybody I possibly can who can help this person. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I'm so grateful to have met someone like you who understands that because I personally have just felt like honestly just given up on the whole church system as a whole i was like look this is not doing me justice <laughs> um but meeting someone like you like i'm definitely i want to help get that message out there i want to help you you know get connected to those churches that need to kind of make that transition into understanding the importance of comprehensive care um thank you so much for all the amazing information you shared today where can people find you read these amazing articles that you've been writing and just like follow you yeah absolutely so um i'm, I'm very active on twitter at at kyle james howard um, my website is kylejhoward.com and i literally just incorporated a nonprofit. it's called it's called lighting a path and uh, the reason for that title, if I could, uh, real quickly. Um, so I, I went through different titles. Some people said, hey, why don't you call it Lighting the Path? And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to call it Lighting a Path. Because if I say the path, then I'm making an assertion that I have the way, that my mm. counseling, my methodology is the way to go. And what I want to do is humbly offer up an option you know, to people. And so when they come to me for counseling, I want to be able to say, hey, this is a direction you can go. This is a path. Uh, that, that I'm offering you through SoCare. Uh, but what the minute, so what I've been doing for the past couple of years is I've largely been providing uh, free SoCare for minorities who have experienced spiritual abuse and racial trauma in the church. And I've been able to do that and provide for my family through, through donor support through Patreon. And so I have people who are like patrons who support, who, who give money monthly so that I can uh, take on new counselees and counsel people without them having to worry about paying it. And so I, I primarily do that with lo uh, lower income minorities who can't afford soul care, but who need it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, am, I firmly believe that no one who has been traumatized by the church should have to pay for their own healing. Um, that is a conviction that I'm, I'm seriously passionate about. And so what the um, nonprofit is doing is it's allowing me to branch out even bigger to be able to provide soul care services um, to individuals who can't afford to pay for counseling and, and, and seek to, uh, to help those people. Um, and by being a nonprofit, that allows me to actually, again, to, to branch out farther, to take on more um, clients, and also to connect them with other people, as I mentioned, uh, connecting uh, uh, people who I'm providing soul care for with uh, clinical therapists so that they can get mental health care as well. And through that, I also hope to begin developing resources. So I don't want to keep all this information just in my head or just in podcast interviews, but I want to be able to uh, create videos, lectures, uh, kind of like masterclasses, books, resources, mm -hmm. articles, so that people who want to, to have access to this can get it, can get it for free. Um, and so people who say are suffering from racial trauma, spiritual trauma, they can go to my website and, and get uh, counseling courses or counseling uh, teachings on, on, on care. And those who, leaders, ministers, counselors, pastors who want to grow in these areas so they don't compound people's trauma can come and get resources. Um, and so that, that website is, is currently under development right now. Hopefully within the next month, I'll be public with that nonprofit. 
Uh, but the best place for people to go at this point would be to KyleJHoward.com. Wow, what an incredible conversation. Kyle is such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this topic, and I am so blessed to have been able to meet him and talk about this because this is something that I've needed to explore for a long time, and there have been a lot of questions and uncertainties that I have just been thinking about over the years so i'd love to know what your thoughts are on this conversation do you have any questions have you ever experienced spiritual abuse or racial trauma specifically within the church let's talk about it as always join us in the mentally fit community where we have a safe space where we can talk about things like this and give each other the support we need to get through again um Follow Kyle on Twitter and check out his website. I'm going to drop the information in the show notes. I'm also going to put in a link to his Patreon so that if you are out there, you're listening and you want to help support people um, to be able to get the type of counseling that he offers for free, donate on Patreon so he can continue to do the amazing work that he does So I will see you guys in the Mentally Fit community and let's continue this conversation.